This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the new uh, Distribute Study channel on the New Books Network. We're actually very happy to invite Dr. Old Selberg to, to join us to introduce his newest book, Mediating Alzheimer's. So, the first thing I want to do today just invite Dr. Selberg, I mean, sorry, Selberg to introduce himself to us. Thank you, Shu. Uh, my name is Scott Selberg. Um, I'm an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Linfield University. Uh, in Oregon, in the U.S., um, and my um, my background in in training is in communication and media studies, um, but also um, STS, uh, American studies, cultural studies. Um, so I do media studies, but I'm I'm very interdisciplinary uh, in my research interests. Um, so I kind I like to let the project or the problem determine what you know. What you know, the tools Sorry. that we might bring. There's nothing to repeat. Um, uh, uh, to to bear, um, and that's definitely the case with this book. So I've been researching Alzheimer's for about oh, uh, twenty years now, and that's where this book comes from. Um, but it's definitely looking at Alzheimer's from the perspective of of, of media, media technology. Okay, thank you so much for next question. I'm wondering. Um, what's the reason you take interest in the promising field of disability studies? Uh, well, <laughs> thinking about disability is really essential for the book. Um, Alzheimer's is, is certainly a, it's a disease that can affect you in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think cognitive effects are what most people talk about. Um, memory, probably above all, um, right? Um, but uh, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to tell the difference for a lot of people who have. Um, dementia, or they have some stage of cognitive loss. It's it's hard to say what is a um, a degenerative brain disorder that maybe we want to fix, or we want to change, or we want to um, help with. Um, and what might be everyday aging? What's worth living with? Um, uh, what's a positive thing? Um, and I think we've made a lot of progress in getting people help and people who want help. Um, but I mean, to be frank. For all the research that's out there, um, 
Alzheimer's is wildly overdetermined, right? Some, um, some are going to say it's misunderstood, um, but I think it's overdetermined biomedically, which means that there's this massive imbalance in research on dementia in biomedicine versus the uh, research on dementia in in other fields, right? So I think um, people with Alzheimer's can can you know um, they can have symptoms for a really long time, and I think it's all wrapped up in everyday aging, and so there's these battles in resources in um, in money, uh, that, that, you know, what should we be thinking about? And there's this insistence on cure, um, on, on fixing. And, and I think that's great. I mean, I, I think we can find a cure for the people that need that, but let's also get people the care they need, right? There's this resources debate. Um, it, it's also, a, a, a it's a value system, right? It's a way of thinking. And I think the disability studies has, has really offered us a way of thinking about, how we can live differently with Alzheimer's disease. And I think that that dichotomy is something that, um, it, it's something that I thought I could help talk about. I think media studies, um, and, and media technology, they offer a kind of different way of thinking about Alzheimer's. Um, and so just to be clear, this is very much a book that uses the tools of media studies to address Alzheimer's. That's its, its logic. Um, but disability studies has been an, an enormously helpful. Um, in that approach. And I think a lot of disability folks might say that, you know, um, that my book is too wrapped up in biomedicine. Um, but, you know, I, I'm really trying to frame this entire project with uh, cognition in mind, right? So you know, how are these cognitive abilities that Alzheimer's threatens? How are those cognitive abilities wrapped up in media environments? Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, this is a problem of, of, of media technologies, right? That's what sets the horizon for what good cognition can be, you know, quote unquote, good cognition, you know, that we, that we collectively insist on using, um, you know, um, how much is, 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 is that a, a problem in as much as it's a problem of this degenerative process in brains and bodies. So disability studies, you know, to your question is great for rethinking agency. Um, and I think, there's a tremendous amount of stigma around Alzheimer's, um, and I'm working against that. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of great disability activism uh, around Alzheimer's, and people who are working really hard to maintain their own autonomy in a way that's more accepting of cognitive disabilities. Uh, I mean, that helps with caregiving. It helps with care environments. Um, there's great, um, important uh, kind of political, uh, philanthropic battles around resources. So I think, you know, from the perspective of disability studies, seeing that as a productive space, so cognitive disability can be productive, it can be powerful, um, just as much as it might be something that can make life really difficult uh, in a, uh, in a something I, you know, write about these hypercognitive environments. Um, so, you know, describing and diagnosing those hypercognitive environments, that's a big part of the project. Um, so for me, this is about joining an active conversation. Um, around learning to, to live successfully with dementia. And I think disability studies is great for that. And then of course, a lot of my project is addressing the, the history of Alzheimer's. So that comes into play as, as well. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, um, I mean, just let's turn to a book now. So my, fir my first question about books, I'm, I want to invite you to talk about the theory of the historical 
stage as a way to analyze both the scientific labor of discovery of the disease as Hammers and the epistemological frame that shape this description. Yeah, so uh, the histological gaze, hist- histo- histology, it, it, I mean, this is very much, the histological gaze is a theoretical concept, but it's also just a very a basic set of practices um, that I talk about historically. So histological, the word is um, based on histology, and histology is... Um, uh, is a, a kind of technology. It's a media technology, really, because it's. But it's starting with brains. So it starts with brain tissue. Um, for these researchers, it doesn't have to be brain tissue, but um, for for neuropath, you know, pathologists, that they'll take some some cell tissue, um, some brain tissue, and they'll uh, they'll slice it very thinly, and then they'll um, they have to fix it, uh, which is mean kind of stabilize it, and then they stain it with. Um, with something, um, some sort of dye, um, chemical, um, that, uh, when you look at it through the microscope, then you can see these, these contrasts, these differences, you can see what maybe you're trying to identify. And so that's histology in a nutshell. That's where the histological gaze comes from. But so the other side of this is that gaze idea. This is about the people who are doing that work. So, um, in the, the beginning of this book, I talk about how the you know, the, the, this history of Alzheimer's really from the perspective of the people who uh, discovered it. So the most associated person with Alzheimer's research is, I think the name that people know a lot is Alois uh, Alzheimer. This is this German neuroscientist, and he was working with another uh, famous name um, who was actually his his supervisor or boss, Emil um, Kreppelin. And these guys are all focused on uh, describing disease, right? Classifying disease, and they're doing it in a, in a couple of different ways. One's clinically, right, um, in the clinic with patients, and then they're going to go look at at the brain microscopically, and they're trying to make connections between them, right? And um, there are all these these new. So when this is happening, you know, around the kind of invention of Alzheimer's um, in the early 20th century, there's all these new developments in microscopes in um, in histology, it's kind of a golden age of of research in histology, um, in fixing and staining and in microscopy, right? So, why does that matter? Well, because suddenly all these neuroscientists could see all these new things in the the brain, right? And they're making these connections to clinical behavior. And Alzheimer is one of them. And I think without belaboring his uh, discovery story, um, because that's something that's been told a lot. Um, uh, you know, he really wasn't sure if he'd come up with this new medical diagnosis or not. And um, part of the problem was is that so what these um, scientists had, were identifying in the brain for for Alzheimer's was these amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, um, the plaques and tangles that people talk about a lot. These are these are um, this is kind of brain um, the pathology he discovered, you know, with his microscope. But this was also found in the brains of of people without the cognitive symptoms. And so this is a really crucial problem for the discoveries of Alzheimer's is, is, you know, people weren't sure if this mattered, right? Um, but um, Grevelin was, you know, he's really influential in this. I'm not sure if it was a status thing or a placeholder thing or a, it's unclear, but he names this this um, Alzheimer's in a textbook and then now that's history. But for me, what's a lot more interesting is, is that... Um, 
is how they 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 found this, and that's the histological gaze. Like these guys, um, I call them new media pioneers, right? Because they are these incredible image makers, and everyone's coming from all over Europe. They're coming from the United States um, to 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 learn about fixing and staining and histology, and you know that's how Alzheimer's ends up coming to the to the United States. Actually, is is vis a vis that those practices. So that's the story I tell is about how, um, you know, it's less about how Alzheimer's is this new disease. Um, it's, it's less about the discovery and more about these new biomedical imaging practices. And so that's the histological case. That's the, these new sciences that, 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 that lead to a diagnostic category. Right. But the, the actual abilities, and this is really fascinating. Um, and something I get into a little bit more in the book is that the, the the abilities required for good um, histology are very much um, recognition. They're they are about memory. They are about repetition. So these cognitive abilities that that Alzheimer's so often affects are are in fact the uh, the very things that are necessary for its its description, right? And and I got one. You know, I I would be remiss in not raising this story and, and talking about this and um and and just briefly, I should say that that. This is a really fascinating story. Is, is that um, there's another figure I talk about um, aside from Alzheimer's is America's first black psychiatrist, and his name is Solomon Carter Fuller, and he actually goes to uh, Munich and he studies with Alzheimer's as a as a young neuropathologist, and he ends up um, publishing quite a bit on Alzheimer's disease. And what's fascinating is he's just as invested in the 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 media innovation as Alzheimer's is. He's, he's one of those those people that comes, you know, back to the states and he tells everyone about these new neuroimaging practices. And that's how Alzheimer's really is is kind of in the backseat of that, right? Um, that's how Alzheimer's really gets here is is through those practices. And so it's this very compelling story about how this this deeply important black scientist in 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 early neuroscience about how he's trying to innovate. And experiment how he's doing it in this field that, you know, isn't even sure if it wants him. And then ultimately, he's pushed out of this this his research career. It's it's uh, it's quite sad, quite early, and he goes more into teaching. And his main competitor is this this huge figure in eugenics. And um, but you know, his neuroscience, his 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 proficiency as a as again a new media inventor his skill like his histology skills that's that's gives him this kind of social value that um temporarily offsets some of the effects of racism that certainly um a, a black man would feel in the in the united states at the turn of the century so that's a story that i tell alongside the story of alzheimer's um as a um now try, trying to think about these media oriented cognitive abilities that society is increasingly valued. Uh, instead of looking at this deficit in the brain of someone who maybe might be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I'm looking at these new values around cognition and the way in which they're wrapped up in, in media technologies. And so actually that is in many ways a, a disability history, right? It, it's, it's showing up how society is, is setting up these cognitive values. That's the histological gaze. Okay, thanks so much for your answer. So for another question, um, I want to invite you to talk about the particular disappearance of the Alzheimer's from scientific memory from approximately 1920 to 1960 and the role of 
and neural imaging in the enlistment of a national public, I'm sorry, na national public as both audience to to and uh, even um, sorry, eventual subject of a U.S. research on Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah, well, so Jesse Ballinger is. Um, you know, I should I should start with him because he's he's the he's the best historian of Alzheimer's in 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 my book and, and, and at least in terms of this this kind of science. And um, he has this point that he makes in one of his books, and uh, the book is called Self Senility and Alzheimer's Disease in Modern America. And he complains about the way that um, historians have, have have talked about the history of Alzheimer's. Right, that, that they talk about Alzheimer's. Uh, discovering this disease, and then they jump forward to the 1960s, and then there's this huge gap of research that they never talk about. And he's right about the gap. And so, one of the things that I try to do in the book is I try to talk about, um, I try to make a link between that historical gap and this lack of new media technology. So, a lot of this is about the stories we tell about um, about media innovation in our scientific histories, and. Um, and so it really wasn't until the 1960s that um, you see scientists starting to use electron microscopes, and they're uh, and they're they're using these new microscopes to go back and look at all this old research because they've got these cool new tools, right? So let's go back and 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 look at Alzheimer's disease. We haven't looked at that in a while, right? So the mediation is driving the the conversation, um, and it and it always has, right? It, it is still still something that we're encountering. So. Um, in the sixties, they're looking at these plaques and tangles again with this new machine. And then that it, is a part of a resurgence in, in the science, uh, on Alzheimer's disease. Um, and you know, they still have the same problems. They still have the same, uh, epistemological problems with causality, uh, in terms of showing connections between, uh, pathology and, uh, symptom, right. Um, but they could see that pathology so much more clearly, right? There's all these new details. And so that's the beginning of this, uh, of a, a new trend in neuroimaging that, that um, eventually became more public in the late seventies, early eighties, Alzheimer's becomes more known publicly. Um, and so it uh, clearly, this is not just about new technologies and I don't want to overstate that, but, but I, I a, a significant part of my argument is, is that the media technology gives the the um, the researchers it gives the government it gives the um, the philanthropists a way of of kind of making a case to the public that this is a problem right it gives them a way of talking about Alzheimer's um, because you know in order to do that you need the scary story of the threat of the disease and then you need the story of progress and the the innovation in media technology that's progress right so even if we don't really actually make much progress in terms of clearing these these hurdles from like Alzheimer's original research, right? Um, we're still making progress. And so there's this massive push to imaging at the end of the 20th century. And they need more people to look at. Uh, they need more data. But, you know, so first the, the, the public is this audience to all this new exciting science, right? And um, it's, it's, um, it's a progress narrative. Um, but not, I should say one of the, one of the important things here is, is that in the old days, histological research was done on dead brain tissue. Um, so you could only look at their brains until, you know, once the, the patient had died. Um, but, uh, what happens in this new generation of research, we see 
in vivo um, imaging. So we get we can get data from living patients, and that's a massive shift, right? Um, but for that to happen, they need to be enlisted in these these clinical trials, right? And the way to to do that at least in part, is is to spread the word of the disease. So a lot of this is about making people aware of this imminent threat. And so that's now the audience is now becoming a subject of Alzheimer's research. They're, they're being folded in here. Um, and, you know, you, there was a, there's a lot of things that happened along the way. Um, and it's a, it, uh, some of this is about kind of new diagnostic categories. So you have mild cognitive impairment, for example, kind of bringing people into the fold more early. Um, another important idea is, is that Alzheimer's might be kind of lurking there in your brain um, for years without symptoms. Right? So even if you don't have cognitive impairment, that you can still help out with these research studies and get your brain imaged, right? So the message is to get tested, to get involved, right? It's everyone's at risk for Alzheimer's. And that has this... this this, uh, it, well, it's a, it's a way of medicalizing everybody, uh, you know, in, in like, in kind of a conditional sense. Right. So that's the shift that I was, that I'm talking about this shift from an audience to a, a subject of, of this, um, it's like a new looking neuroimaging industry. Thank you so much for your answer. For last question, um, I want to invite you to talk about diversity of media that demonstrate those ten temporary trends, like popular medical television self-help discourse, advocacy appear under the news media. Also focus on the media artifact that provides to mitigate the risk. Yeah, so the mitigation of risk is, I mean, we've all heard about um, brain games. Uh, you know, it's a it's a big part of this. Uh, there's this huge industry of cognitive self-help, and a lot of that is based in media technologies. Um, and I think a, a significant part of just everyday aging is thinking about your own brain health and how, how can you improve that. And uh, some of this is now based in this, uh, it's a more contemporary idea of cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is this idea that you can build up, you know, kind of kind of like stores of cognitive ability that that offset um, your eventual brain breakdown, right? But I think just more broadly, brain plasticity, the idea that that's that's a lot more common now that you can exercise or improve or save or change your brain. Um, and that's a, a kind of lifestyle choice. I think this really has caught on a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. And there's an industry around that. Um, and I think, you know, and one of the interesting things here is, is that um, for Alzheimer's, it, it, it disproportionately affects certain people, women. Latinos, right? It's but it's age that is um, oftentimes understood as the biggest risk factor, right? So that's the number one. Everyone ages in some sense, like so. Even if they're living with a different lifespan, right? There is this idea that we all age, and so that's this again this tremendous universalizing net. I know that that so many people are seeing the threat of Alzheimer's as a normal part of aging. Uh, and so the weird thing is, it's just both normal, but it's also pathological, right? So if you look at um, a lot of the discourse around Alzheimer's, it's this thing that anyone can develop, right? But it's also this terrible thing, right? So it's this normal abnormal. And I think collectively, 
uh, people, especially living in the U.S., have been put to task to take care of their own brains. And that's the the primary U.S. advocacy organization, the, uh, the Alzheimer's Association. They have a saying that is, maintain your brain. That's the slogan, maintain your brain. So I look at that maintenance, you know, what is it? What does that actually look like? Uh, and I think the brain games are the maybe the the biggest or obvious rather media technology, and a lot of that is controversial about whether it works or it doesn't. And there's been a lot of um, public battles, legal battles fought around that. Uh, but you know, it's amazing how many things seniors are told help with Alzheimer's, right? And they they use this language that scientists aren't sure yet, but there's a lot of promise you know, eat this or eat that, or, um, there's an article, um, there's this, this on Oprah's website. I cite this in a book. She cited this, uh, Oprah Winfrey, the, um, uh, she cites this, this Finnish study that showed that if you drink three to five cups of coffee, that that can lower your risk of Alzheimer's by 65%. Um, but then in this, also cautions moderation, right? Because if you drink too much coffee, that can interfere with your sleep, right? So that can cause Alzheimer's. Um, so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to use your own judgment in navigating this. And and it's like this cognitive market where you're being sold this cognitive health. And so I think for your everyday person is really caught in this loop where all these different things can cause Alzheimer's and all these different things can prevent dementia and it's very tough to navigate. And a lot of that fodder, um, you know, we see on TV, on news stories, you know, in the news is, is this, uh, is the evidence of cure or, uh, the, the therapy is just around the corner. And we've been hearing this progress drumbeat for a long time now. Um, so I get into brain games in more detail in the book, but they're really a part of that broader media environment of of that's that risk mitigation um, that I talk about. Okay, thanks so much for answering that. So for the next question, I'm wondering about the way contemporary popular culture like depict Alzheimer's rely on a particular representational logic to communicate the collective concern about the disease. Um, yeah, well, I mean it. It turns out that cognition or cognitive abilities, they have these very specific codes in popular culture. So we use these images of media technologies to communicate how the brain's breaking down or how it's under threat. And so I, I describe some of the different aesthetics that, um, this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. They kind of show the brain and how it works in um, biasthetic. Just, just as an example, uh, one of the things I talk about is I call the snapshot aesthetic, like a snapshot, like a photographic snapshot. And so the snapshot aesthetic is really about um, loss or the threat of of loss. And so for a lot of uh, the popular culture of Alzheimer's, um, it, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, there's, there's you see these fading Polaroid pictures. When people talk about Alzheimer's, you see maybe reference to post-it notes or um, old home videos that are flickering and showing some 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 wear or some patina um you see old family photos and all that's meant to to uh to to kind of reference this threat the 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 threat to memory right this and it's a very much a focus on on memory above all right so something like memory loss if you're trying to communicate um something about alzheimer's it can be hard to represent with a picture right taking a picture of that memory loss could be hard so the stand-in is just that you have this this kind of ephemeral media, lossy media, um, you know, and, you know, that I think that there's a lot of ways that we imagine the brain as a kind of media technology, right? So cognitive abilities and, and media have done things for each other for a long time. And, and so like a post-it as an example, it helps us remember. Anyway. Oh, I'm going to use this post-it to take a little note to remember it later on. So we use it as this extension of our neural capacities, right? It's a, or it's a replacement. Um, so it makes sense that that would be the figure for loss or lossy. I like this word lossy um, for thinking about Alzheimer's disease. And it's all very nostalgic, this focus on old photos and old media, uh, because it's about who the person with Alzheimer's used to be, you know, before Alzheimer's came along. So it's this escape from the present. And that's really something that I put a lot of pressure on um, the 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 kind of idealization of the past um, is something I I address in in the book, um, and so that's an example of an aesthetic of uh, of Alzheimer's, the snapshot aesthetic, and uh, you know it has a partner in in another kind of brain aesthetic, and that's I call it the neuroscientific aesthetic, and and it's similar in terms of what it does, but it looks different. So you, instead of, you know, images of the past, it's, it's a kind of focus on the future, which is, um, kind of neuroimages images and brain scans and pad and MRI. And it's all about brains getting photographed and imaged. And so Alzheimer's is very much understood to be a problem of the brain, um, you know, in popular culture. And obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but, and I think this is important, the, this idea that the neuroscientific aesthetic is um, in, in many ways kind of simplifies this argument, but this does not mean that we think that the brain is simple, right? It's the opposite. And we have this great trust in um, neuroscientists to figure the brains out for those of us that don't understand them, right? So this is a collective trust in neuroscience. Uh, one of the most collect, you know, we, we, we collectively very much are invested in neuroscience, um, that it will eventually find a cure or find a therapy. And, and this is because brains are very complicated, right? And they, they're, they're, there's so much that we have invested in them. 
So when I talk about representational logics of Alzheimer's, uh, this is in part what I'm talking about. These are these are these different aesthetics that that work in a relationship to each other. This kind of snapshot aesthetic and the neuroscientific aesthetic, and um, yeah, it's interesting. They're 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 both neuroimages, right? But one's about the past, one's about the future, and so um, I'm kind of making an argument about how they work in a relationship to each other in in uh, popular culture of Alzheimer's disease. Thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm wondering about a New York Museum of Modern Arts Influential Alzheimer's Assess Program. Meet me at MoMA. Yeah, I did uh, ethnographic research at MoMA. Uh, they're, uh, they've got this really impressive program, uh, their Alzheimer's Access Program, and it's become, uh, I guess, foundational for a lot of other museum programs uh, that um, address dementia. Yeah, it's been super influential. And um, when I started looking at it, you know, the late aughts, um, it was very much ahead of its time. And uh, now they're they're somewhat commonplace now. But the basic idea is, is a, a person with uh, dementia, um, you know, I, uh, uh, they can go to the museum with their caregiver or with their family member. And they can go on a day that it's the museum's closed, or they can have some kind of private space there, and that they can look at art in these these groups of, of of people. And so it's relaxing. It's this kind of welcoming community, and the docents are all trained um, uh, to kind of shape the conversation and and look at the art. And it's this closed environment, and there's air conditioning, you know, so it's nice. And I think for, for me, the big question was always, you know, how important is the art when, when folks are going to these, these care programs or these educational programs, um, as they're often called, and does it, does it matter that they're looking at art? You know, does it matter that it's modern art? Does it, how much does the representation matter? How much does what they're looking at matter? And there's research that's been done in this, but I think, for me, a lot of this is just about being attentive to the people who are at the program and, and learning from them. So um, this question of voice is really important in my research. And I was I was trying really hard to to honor the, the people that were part of this program and not impose too much of my own analysis on it. Um, so there's some description in there um, that, that kind of resists that. Um, so this is one that helps to read, I think, uh, to kind of see how the the people are engaging with the program, with the art, with the docents, with the the built environment, with the, um, that kind of thing. Um, but it's really, it's a great program. Um, it gets people to, to talk and engage with each other. It's safe. It's quiet. And museums are really quiet and <laughs> when they're closed to the public. And for, so I'd say for, for people that like museums, that like that kind of space, that find it comforting, um, for for people um, who might have anxiety, right? The key is, is you have to be comfortable in those spaces. And I would say that that from my perspective, the people that really thrived in these care programs are, are people who are, are really comfortable with that space or with that with that art, with the whole kind of what it means to sit around and look at art and talk about it. Um, because I think a lot of these programs are just, they're, they're safe, controlled spaces, right? And that that's, a nice place to visit. Um, and there can be a community there 
there can be a camaraderie there, but it really depends on who else is in your group. Um, you know, you can have successful engagements with art, but that depends on your own relationship with art and depends on the museum. Uh, so I try to try to get into some of that. I think the museum based care has become a, a pretty big player in, in care industry in in um, the, the last um, 15, 20 years for Alzheimer's. Thank you so much for that. So for another question, I'm wondering about how the new creative practice of art making become increased German to Alzheimer's care. Yeah, the well, so the flip side of looking at art is making making art, I guess. Um, so those are those creative practices of, of art making. Um, and yeah, I think one of the things I do is I try to interrogate creativity, um, you know, with, a, with a, there's, we have a lot invested in creativity in artists uh, in terms of their, their selfhood, um, their genius, their, you know, intentional powers. Um, this idea that being creative is some kind of pure practice. That's something I challenge in this book. Um, I think creativity is actually a pretty new word. I think um, it's ideologically it's pretty loaded. And so I look at a couple of different artists that um, had some degree of dementia, were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, a guy named William Uttermolen. Uh, I look at Willem de Kooning and I look at there are, and I look at the, basically I look at the discourse around the art. So what were people saying about their art after they were diagnosed? And one of the things I noticed is that people look at these paintings, um, for evidence of dementia, right? So is there some connection between the threatened self of the person with dementia? You know, as you lose your memories, as you lose your cognitive abilities, the story goes, you lose yourself, right? That's a lot of the kind of stigma around Alzheimer's. Is there evidence of that threatened selfhood in the painting, in the pigment, in the way it's being applied, right? The painting on the canvas. And so kind of looking at that discourse. And um, I, one of the things I I challenge is, is that the, the discourse of creativity or the discourse of artistic practice, that for a lot of people, this is still seen as magical or not really not understanding that, that it's a kind of magical practice um, and so creativity, we're not quite sure how it happens, but like, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's maybe it can be good for people with Alzheimer's and our practice is, is now pretty ubiquitous as a part of elder care. And it can be helpful for a lot of different reasons. Um, and again, I, I this is really important. I'm not against art. I, I really am. I, it, I'm just against the way that it's situated as unchecked and pure somehow outside of anything. Right. But we're still asking people with dementia to produce and to create and to engage with a media culture. And they're a part of these broader social pressures to produce and create in media environments. And that's something I try to, to question, um, or at least to, to talk about. And I think that art therapy can be so wonderful. It can be so great. And I've been a part of these engagements, you know, I, with people with dementia making art, and I've shared in that. And, and again, I'm not against art therapy, um, but I, I think it needs to be studied in a way that it at least acknowledges the value system 
around artistic creativity um, and its connection to selfhood, who we are, right? And and like like artists are capable of some exceptional self translation, and that's a complicated conversation for sure. Um, uh, but I think we can we can value art therapy, but we can we can do it with maybe more um, more awareness, and that's the the story I try to tell there. Thank you so much for your answer. So now uh, for last question today, I'm wondering about how to treat national crisis of caregiving as a problem of representation and recognition. Yeah, so representation and recognition are um, these big keywords. Um, you know, around care, I and caregiving uh, is this. It, it has been now for a while. It continues to be this this huge focus for people um, who, you know, everyone who lives in a relationship with Alzheimer's. You know, it's a, it's a problem. It's a gift. It's 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 totally encompassing. Um, it's overwhelming. It's been this ongoing crisis that we've been working on in the u.s for a while now um with improvements for sure but for but but still it's it's this huge um uh kind of uh nexus of of interest and i think um with respect to caring the language of care the way we talk about it collectively in our popular culture is is through the language of love and uh usually it's love lost uh or love threatened um, but I, one of the things I do is, is I'm looking at all this popular culture around Alzheimer's and the stories that we tell in, in movies and TVs and, and, and books, and it's all about love. You know, it's just, it's love. That's how we understand the crisis of care is through, is through this language of love. And this, this is, this means we're learning about care through this, this language. And it creates this kind of pressure to understand care as love. And when that's different, there's this odd imbalance there. So this is, this is one that has to be treated very carefully. I, I think it's maybe left, um, <laughs> to, to go, go to the book. Um, I, I don't, and, 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 you know, and see this for yourself. I don't, I don't want to say that, that care needs to be a certain thing. Um, uh, this is a very delicate issue. Um, I think it would be great if we could release caregiving from from the pressure of love, certainly a sentimental love. If we could, if we could let care be something more collective, if we could let care be something more social, more community based. Um, clearly, no one can do this alone, um, and anyone who's in that 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 space knows that. Um, that's kind of the nature of care, isn't it? Um, and, and I, I think this, for us, this means we need to tell better stories about dementia. And I, and I think we can do that. And I, and I think people with dementia are doing that. Right. So, uh, look at Glenn Campbell, the, you know, the, the country singer, um, he wrote this great song, um, you know, not going to miss you. Like, like he's not going to be the one that's doing the missing. He was, he's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and, and, and he writes this, this he writes about this perspective, right? And you know he's he's not going to be missing you. And isn't he the one that we should be thinking about in this, at least in part? And he's releasing us in many ways from the pressures of 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 love um, as such within caregiving. Um, you know, it's it's the it's the opposite of all you need is love, right? 
because you do need much more than that. And we need to be attentive to that. And, and obviously love can play a role in, in caregiving. Um, but, and I'm not against love at all. Um, of course it goes without saying, I hope, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a more complicated story that we need to tell. Uh, so anyways, this is a delicate argument. Um, and, and if, uh, folks that are listening are interested in that, I'd encourage them to, to get access to the book, uh, to the text and, 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 um, get into that themselves. Cause, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a story that needs to be told in, in different ways. Thanks so much for your answer. So at the end of our interview today, I want to directly talk to our audience. So for all any of our listeners who take any interest in you know the history, I mean the past and present of Alzheimer's disease, they really with the question about the representation of the disease in contemporary culture, American culture and their care work or some uh, and, uh, and any other topics or subject related to the Alzheimer's in our society, I highly recommend to consider buying a copy of Dr. Zerberger's new book, Mediating Alzheimer's. I want to repeat the title again, Mediating Alzheimer's. It's a fantastic book. As a disability trend, as a history of medicine, I won't say I, after reading this fantastic, fantastic book, I learned a lot. I, I got a lot of insight, insightful opinions and discussion from the book. So I personally highly recommend that you buy a copy of this fantastic book. So thank you so much for listening to our episode today. Have a good day. Thank you.